Well, it is fitting this morning that we would come under the preaching of God's word. And so I'd invite you to turn to Philippians chapter two. This is where we will be again this morning. Philippians chapter two. It is fitting that we would come under the preaching of God's word this morning, even as we acknowledge that this is the time of the year that we remember, remember the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. And not only that, but his resurrection as well. We know that this is the means by which God saves sinners. And so we're thankful. Thankful that we have this opportunity again to come to the cross through God's word. By way of introduction this morning, I'd like to submit to you a quote by Puritan Thomas Brooks. Now he wrote in his volume, Heaven on Earth, this written in 1667, he wrote this thought. He said, Oh, then be ashamed, Christians, that the worldlings are more studious and industrious to make sure of pebbles than you are to make sure of pearls. I'll read that again. Oh, then be ashamed, Christians that the worldlings are more studious and industrious to make sure of pebbles than you are to make sure of pearls. This is problematic, isn't it? It troubles us to hear this. And this, we know, troubles us because it ought not be this way. We know that this world is found invested in a great deal of effort, and that effort even exceeds those in the Christian church. That evidence is found in every newscast that we listen to. Those belonging to this world labor vigorously, do they not? And they labor vigorously in what really amounts to the polishing of rocks. Their confidence their certain confidence, their unwavering hope is placed in vainglorious pursuits. We've seen this even most recently as many are building the most influential social media platform. This is common. This is an ongoing discussion in the media. We see how Individuals are seeking after gaining and maintaining political power in our world. Others are trying to secure the earth's survival by going green and making this their mission. And we see in headline after headline, ongoing struggles in our world. And we would quickly, in light of the cross, we'd admit that all of this is vanity is it not? And yet, so many pursue this with such great effort, with such vigor. But we know that Christians are not of this world. And as such, we are not polishing rocks. That's not our habit. Why? Well, because as, as Matthew writes in his gospel, we possess the pearl of great value. And Paul, in our text here this morning, seeks to draw this out a little in having us consider our proper, what should be our proper orientation. He seeks to point us in the right direction by reminding us of what a gospel-centered life ought to look like. And so let's read our text this morning. The text that I'll cover is second or Philippians chapter 2 and verses 16 through 18, but I'd like to back up to verse 12 and begin reading there. 
Philippians 2, 12 through 18. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. This is God's word. Now, we've already looked at verses 12 through 15. In fact, we, we've looked at all that precedes in this epistle of, to the Philippians. We spent time earlier in this chapter on top of the mountain, really, as we saw that rich Christology described by Paul, talking about how Christ, although he was equal with God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And we see in that his humility and then his obedience and going, coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, ultimately to go to the cross and to hang there, to suffer and to die as we know. And this, so that at a time yet to come, every tongue would confess and every knee would bow before him and acknowledge that he, in fact, is Yahweh. And then in verse 12, you'll remember man's responsibility. This is his responsibility within his own sanctification. Paul commands us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he issues this command while at the same time then in verse 13 proclaiming the sovereignty of God in that same sanctification process where he writes, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Paul described the character of gospel-centered living and we learned of that character that really is unbecoming of a life lived according to the gospel, with Paul writing, or in fact, prohibiting our grumbling and disputing in verse 14. And these, he remind, in, in doing this, he reminded us of Israel's unfaithful habit before the God of their deliverance. And so, this was not the way we were to conduct ourselves. This is not conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But then we also looked at that worthy character described. We see this, saw this to be a character marked by external blamelessness and internal innocence, a character that properly bore the familial resemblance being referred to as children of God. And in doing so, therefore, we would be immune from accusations that would be slung our way. And yet, Paul reminded us of all of this within the reality that we find ourselves in, and that reality being this earthly habitat, which he described to be a crooked and perverse generation. This is no doubt language that he borrowed from Deuteronomy 32 and verse 5, which reads as thus, they, that being unfaithful Israel, have acted corruptly toward him, him being God, him being the rock as described in the verse just previous in verse 4, whose work is perfect, a God of faithfulness, who is without justice, 
who is righteous and upright is he, as is described in Deuteronomy 32, 4. But he goes on to say in Deuteronomy 32, 5, they are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. And therein, in our text here in Philippians, we see that Paul tucks away this as a warning for us believers as well. We're not to resemble the world that we find ourselves at the same time immersed in, surrounded by, even as we continue in the mortal flesh. Rather, he goes on to say that we are to shine brilliantly as lights in this world. And we see this at the end of verse 15, where he writes, among whom you are made manifest as lights in the world. Well, how are we to do this? This is what our focus is this morning. I would say this, that appearing as lights in the world really becomes a a central aspect of the text that we find ourselves in. As we do all things without grumbling and complaining. It's in an effort to shine as lights in this world, rather being blameless and innocent to display ourselves as light shining in this world. And he goes on to describe the sacrifice and service, certainly, again, to demonstrate ourselves as lights shining in this world. And so we see Paul describe here gospel-centered living, a brilliant life of sacrificial service, really. And he does so in three ways. And Paul provides us instructions so that you will know how you are to live as the church according to the gospel that saves and to the glory of Christ. So three ways to live brilliantly in sacrificial service so that you as a church, you as individual believers making up the body can live according to the gospel that saves. Now I say three ways. We looked at the first way the last time I preached out of this text and we saw the character of gospel-centered living. And that was found in verses 14 and 15. And this morning, I submit to you that we will see the catalyst for gospel-centered living in verse 16, followed by the custom of gospel-centered living found in verses 17 and 18. So first, let's consider the catalyst for gospel-centered living. The catalyst for gospel-centered living. Again, reading from the text. And beginning in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. How must we shine as lights in this world? Well, First, let's admit one thing. Let's admit that Paul has the Christian mission in view here. The church does not shine for her own benefit, does she? I say this so that we can understand that Paul means what Paul means by holding fast the word of life. We don't, we don't shine for our own benefit but rather we shine in order to hold fast the word of life. This participle actually has several nuances. Holding fast is rendered in the NASB. But this this word can mean to maintain a grasp of something or hold fast, which makes sense to us. It certainly could, could apply It can also mean to hold upon in order to apply or to observe, to attend to, really to live this gospel out. That would make sense here too, as we give or pay attention specifically to holding fast the word of life. But I think 
the most accurate rendering in, in our case here, in this, in this text, is to consider this as holding forth, to hold out, really, to, to offer the word of life. This is what we are to do as we appear as lights in the world. Remember that missional aspect that we see in the text, that we are appearing as lights in the world. Well, what is it then that we as Christians hold out? What do we hold forth? What do we have to offer? Paul tells us, and he tells the Philippians here in the text, hold forth the word of life. What is this word of life? Well, Jesus said in John 6 and verse 63, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And then shortly thereafter, Simon Peter affirms this. He says, you have the words of eternal life. What are these life-giving words? Well, Paul answers that question for us in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10 when he writes this, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's this life-bringing, life-giving gospel that we hold forth. This is the word of life. But what does holding forth the word of life look like? Well, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You see this described. Shining as lights in our world while holding forth the word of life. Picking it up in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. This is the knowledge of Christ being made known through the sweet aroma of the gospel. And then in verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We see more figurative language here used by Paul. Not only do we appear as lights, but we smell as a fragrance of Christ, as ambassadors of the gospel. This, we see in verse 15, this saved and perishing language is really reminiscent of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, is it not? For the word of the cross is foolishness for those, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Continuing on in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16, to the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? We must admit, the cross is the determiner of destinies, is it not? It's through the cross that every human soul must stand before and either be saved under or it just becomes an aroma from death to death, even as those perish. And in verse 17, for we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. You see, those shining as lights, they're not falsely teaching as peddling some ineffective trinket. No, we hold fast, we hold forth the word of life. This is the power of God unto salvation. As another Puritan wrote, we are merchants of an invaluable jewel. And the gospel of Christ serves as the catalyst for gospel-centered life. It fuels our light 
to shine in this world. Now, if we as Grace Life are to appear as a light in this crooked and perverse generation, let it only be because of the gospel that saved her. Let it only be the result of the gospel that fuels her. And why then? Why should we hold this perspective? Well, Paul gives us the purpose behind his gospel-centered life of ministry. And we really could add another point here to this outline. And I'd ask you then to turn back to Philippians chapter 2, where we see at the end of verse 16, the culmination of that light-bearing gospel-centered life where Paul writes the purpose, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. We know that Paul's view, even as we've gone through this epistle, he's always looking forward. We see this in in chapter one and verse six, where he wrote, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Again, in verse 10 of chapter one, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. He anticipated his future vindication in chapter one and verse 20, where he talks about his earnest expectation and hope and not be putting to shame. And then again, we saw as we stood on that mountaintop where he anticipates the time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, in chapter 3 and verse 10, he points the Philippians' gaze forward when he talks about our citizenship being in heaven. But what is this day of Christ that he is referring to so that you will Prove yourself blameless and innocent in this day. Well, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The place where our deeds of wood, hay, and straw will be burned away or counted as loss. This is also the place where our deeds of gold and silver and precious stones will be tested through the fire of judgment and will be rewarded. This according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so Paul here too points the gaze forward as he anticipates the day of Christ, while at the same time trusting that this future hope produces certain results even as he remains here on earth. He does not run nor toil in vain. These are Paul's two favorite metaphors, perhaps. He talks about this elsewhere. To run is to compete in life's race. And that in order to win an imperishable wreath. And he talks about this running as really needing preparation with a body trained to be subject to his will. He buffets his body and with intentional preparation to ensure that effort leads to success. And to toil To toil is to exert oneself physically, mentally, and spiritually to the point of wearying, to the point of fatigue and and tiring. We know this to be true, certainly in Paul's ministry. He describes his ministry labors in Acts chapter 20. I'm sure you're familiar with this, where he writes, night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And then in verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me in everything I showed you 
that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This was the pattern of Paul's consistent and daily ministry, to run faithfully, to work tirelessly, to work sacrificially. And all of this because Paul anticipated that future time when he would have reason to glory. Paul's reason to glory would be to hear, well done, good and faithful slave. And so we see here in verse 16, where Paul writes, as we appear as lights shining in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. This is the catalyst for gospel-centered living, that we would hold fast, hold forth the word of life in anticipation for what still lies ahead. And then, Finally, let's then come to this final point, the custom of gospel-centered life. We see this in verses 17 and 18, where Paul writes, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, I ask you to consider this again from another Puritan, Richard Baxter, who wrote on Christian service. This is what he writes on Christian service. It is then an error, though it is but few, I think, that are guilty of it, to think that all religion lieth in minding only the life to come and disregarding all things in this present life. All true Christians must seriously mind both the end and the means or way. If they mind not believingly the end, they will never be faithful in the use of the means." If they mind not and use not diligently the means, they will never obtain the end. None can use earth well that prefer not heaven, and none come to heaven at age that are not prepared by well using earth. And so, friends, we certainly have our work cut out for us here as we have an earthly ministry, do we not? even as we anticipate an end. And this is really what we see Paul commending the Philippians for a number of times is that sacrifice and service that he so clearly recognizes in the life of the church. We saw this in chapter one and verse five in view of their participation in the gospel, in his gospel ministry. And then again in verse 19 of chapter 1, where he wrote, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. Even their prayers were a part of ministry, even as they prayed on Paul's behalf. We see again in chapter 2 and verse 30, Epaphroditus came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient or incomplete in your service to me. And so this participation in the gospel is an ongoing process. It's an ongoing way of life, really. We see again in chapter 4 and verse 18 where Paul writes, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. This is part of their sacrifice is, is in their giving to further Paul's gospel ministry, even as he continues to languish in jail. 
But here for us now in these verses, Paul highlights their faithful ministry work together with his. This is the custom or the practice of gospel-centered living. It's a sacrifice and a service that is rooted in faith. And let's not overlook then also the blending of literal language with figurative language as Paul writes here. We've already seen that he describes us appearing as lights and that he did not run in vain. And now, even if I'm poured out upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. This is priestly language and Paul has their priestly service in view. This is their ongoing life of ministry. This is their offering before God. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 describes this. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul talks about how he is being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of their faith. Spendomai is the Greek term for poured out. And this in reference to a drink offering. This would have been familiar to both the Gentiles in the audience and also the Jews. We know that this drink offering is actually described in Numbers chapter 15 and verse 5, where we read, and you shall prepare wine for the drink offering, one-fourth of a hen with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice for each lamb. And then just a little further in the text, as a soothing aroma to the Lord. This drink offering was wine or water and honey that would be poured over the burnt offering, even as it was hot and on the altar, or it would be simply poured out on the ground that surrounded the altar. And this was really a ritual that capped and completed the sacrifice to God. And so let's notice then Paul's language here. He's describing his ministry to the Philippians as really a secondary offering that serves to crown their main offering of sacrificial service. So Paul's life work is complementary. It's what complements the believers in Philippi and what they were accomplishing. And we know that what they accomplished, their sacrifice and service, was with faith as the impetus for motivating their sacrifices and their ministry. Now, I realize some may look at this and go, well, poured out as a drink offering sounds more like death than ongoing ministry. And it's true that in Paul's letter to, Second, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he does actually use this same term, but there he is speaking of his impending death. But I don't believe so here, although he does understand fully the conditions that he's living under, under Nero, knowing that his death is possible, yet here he's writing in the present tense, but even if I'm being poured out, his ministry is currently ongoing, even while in prison. And again and again in this letter to the Philippians, he writes of expecting to reunite with them. And that, that this would be so that he could continue to be poured out over their ministry work and it, over their holy living before God. Theirs is a living and holy sacrifice similar to what we see in Romans 12 and verse 1, where Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul's life here being poured out is described vividly in his letters. We know that according to Romans 1 and in verse 9, Paul said that he served God in his spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. 
This was his ministry's work. And then more specifically, in fulfilling his direct calling, we read in Romans 15 and verse 16 that he was a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And we also know that Paul was passionate in his ministry. Passion would be a word that could easily describe his ongoing apostolic ministry. Paul's was a faithful and enduring and genuine zeal for ministry. We see this in Philippians 4 and 17. He was seeking for the profit which increases to the Philippians' account. He desired to further grow them to their benefit. And it had him desiring also that he would impart some spiritual gift to you, as he writes in Romans chapter one, that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. We see great passion and great zeal in his ministry's work. And to the Thessalonians, he, he wrote, having so fond and affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. He was sacrificial even to giving his life to the church so that in some way he could impart some spiritual gift to her. To the Corinthians, he described really what could be an aspect of his philosophy of ministry this way. He said, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. And it was the Philippians' acts of sacrifice, their formal service in what they embraced as their duty to participate in and to contribute to Paul's gospel ministry, which brought Paul his greatest joy. He writes, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Now we know that Philippians really is a, a book that has as one of its themes, one of its central themes, joy. His circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel in chapter 1 and verse 12. This brought him great joy, the greater progress of the gospel, even in hardship. And a little bit later, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Again, that Christ would be proclaimed in every circumstance brought him re to rejoice. We know that he said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And yet he was convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And so he desired to rejoice together with them and share in their joy, even as it would bring him great joy. Well, Grace Life, we'd have to admit this. Over the last year, we can really identify with much of what Paul has been writing to the Philippians. Can we not? We've seen time and time again as, as this epistle has been preached from this pulpit, there have been so many similarities and so many ways that we gleaned encouragement and strength to continue in our own pursuit to speak the word of God without fear. In the face, this has happened in the face of what I would say is the fiercest persecution that our generation here in North America and here specifically in Canada and Alberta has, faith, has faced. And yet you have faithfully participated in gospel ministry. 
We've seen faithful examples of a number of pastors worthy of being imitated. And you've heard them continually express their commitment to the gospel while encouraging others to the pouring out of their own lives in priestly service through diligent labor. But we'd have to at the same time admit that me just simply stating this isn't enough. Nor is it enough for Paul to just simply state this. And so he, com- he concludes this paragraph with imperatives. Let's take a look at those in verse 18. These imperatives require our, then, require our application. He writes, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Rejoice in the same way. Rejoice in the same way. Christian, let not the worldlings be more studious and industrious to make sure of pebbles than you are to make sure of pearls. Our present day society provides us with ample gospel opportunities. And this so that we would be poured out as drink offerings. Even upon the sacrifice and service of one another's faith. And oh, that we would possess the self-denying perspective of Paul. We see this in chapter three, where we read, who counted all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. We certainly have seen the loss of jobs among us. We've seen the loss of status among us. We've seen the loss of relationships, the loss of property, the loss of inalienable rights. We've even seen imprisonment. Do we count these as privileges? Have you walked through this time with great joy, even as we have suffered, as you have suffered? Have you rejoiced in these moments? Well, I would say this, it's not over. We now live in a time when unwavering faithfulness to Christ's headship is being met with intensifying hostility. The government has never admitted that they have no authority over the terms and circumstances of Christian worship. They have not admitted that. In fact, they stand all the more tall on the claims that they have been making all along. And so when Paul writes in Acts chapter 20 that the Holy Spirit solemnly testified to him in every city saying that bonds and afflictions awaited him, I would say that we too can anticipate bonds and afflictions yet to come. This will occur in every area of our society. And if this is the case, then will your sacrificial service parallel that of the sacrificial service we see in Acts chapter five? You'll remember the apostles, they were flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. Well, we've been told to adulterate the terms and circumstances of our worship and our fellowship. And if this is the case, and it is, then how will you depart from the courts? How will you depart from those courts? Will you depart rejoicing that you've been considered worthy to suffer shame For his name? Is that the way you'll depart? Will you go right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, as the apostles did, as we see in Acts chapter 5? Well, when it comes to your participation in the body, can you say that you're all in? Is this something that you can say? Can you say together with Paul, that you did not run in vain nor toil in vain. 
I ask this because this is, this is the application that Paul gives us to consider that we would, that we would share in rejoicing. How do we evaluate that? Well, there could be several ways. We could ask this question. Are you a Sunday to Sunday participant? Is that what your sacrifice and service amounts to? If that's what it is, it doesn't resemble Paul, nor does it resemble the Philippians. Where are your sleeves rolled up? Are you invested in the life of the church? Are you preparing yourself to run? In order to prepare yourself to run with the same vigor that Paul ran, this really requires help from others even in the church. Using your gifts to build up others in the church. We know that Grace Life has many ministries. Grace Life has many needs, both individual and corporate. Are you participating in these ministries? Are you participating in meeting those needs? Remember, we want to be light in this world. Now, some might say, no, nah, you know what? I'm a little too introverted for that. I'll keep to myself. That's for others to do, but I, I can just continue on status quo. No, no, there's need everywhere. And if you are a genuinely saved believer, then you've been given gifts, a gift or gifts to use among the corporate gathering. Do not withhold are you a part of a Bible study? Bible studies are a wonderful way to be plugged into the daily life of the church. And not only for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. We've got women's ministry, men's ministry, FOF, and numerous Bible studies. Are you giving with what has been entrusted to you? You see, all of these and many more, I could go on and on, are sacrifice and service that really arise out of your faith. And as we've already seen, as we saw last time, this sacrifice is one that could be characterized as blameless and innocent, living as children of God above reproach in this world. These are the ways that you can participate. And I would say that there's, no better time to assess this than today to ask yourself, is this what my sacrifice, what my service looks like? Am I like Paul? Am I desiring to be simply poured out upon the sacrifice and service of the church? Well, There are likely those of you that are outside of all of this, outside of the church. I'd like you to consider our Lord, who, according to Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sinner, I would ask you, have you laid aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles you, or do you remain in your sin this morning? Have you fixed your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith? Or are you continuing to polish those stones that really amount to nothing? Well, this day doesn't have to go on that way. God is sovereign. He has created this world. And because of that, he also has established the standard by which we must live. He's given us his commands. And yet we know even from the beginning, his, commands were, his command was broken 
And every single last human being born into human history since that time has been born into sin with a sin nature and merely voluntarily following after it selfishly. And as a result is without a way to be reconciled to God in and of your own means, your own ability. And we gather together this morning because we want to acknowledge Christ's work on the cross. This is a time when we come before the cross yet again. Have you come before the cross? The cross of Christ is the only way by which you can have the penalty of your sin paid for. Even as sin is placed on Christ as he hung on the cross and in exchange, his righteousness then credited to your account as the wrath of God was appeased because of his spotless sacrifice, the only spotless sacrifice. Have you turned from your sin? Have you turned to Christ? That is repentance and faith. Have you done those? And have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendering your will wholeheartedly to his, that he now is the master of your life? If not, then you remain in sin. And should your life come to an end today, you would remain outside of Christ's presence for an eternity. But it doesn't have to be that way. We look to the cross and to the resurrection with a great hope, great future anticipation. And I would ask you, in fact, in fact I would plead with you this day to turn to Christ, to trust in him, and then to live out your life with sacrifice and service to the Lord of glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are again challenged by your word this morning as we see the life of Paul and the life of the believers in Philippi as they desired to live in holiness before you while living sacrificially and living in service to you. And this presents us a great challenge. We ask God that you would enable us to live that out more fully, more vibrantly, that we would be as lights in this world, shining brilliantly while holding out and offering the gospel to all we would come upon so that Christ would be glorified, so that this death that we acknowledge this day would not remain unnoticed, but rather that you would use it salvifically to draw others to yourself and for your glory. In Christ we pray, amen.